So everybody loves the game Follow the Leader. As little kids, we love Follow the Leader. It's a really simple game. It's easy to learn the rules. Basically, you pick a leader, one person, and then everyone else follows the leader. It's a great game. And uh, the leader gets the fun job of doing all sorts of goofy movements and hand motions and twists and turns and cartwheels, and then they get to see all of their followers do likewise and follow their lead. What the leader does, the others follow. Anyone who doesn't follow is out of the game. It's a great game. But follow the leader is more than just a kid's game. As we grow up, we have all learned the lesson that we all have leaders that we have to follow, whether you like it or not. Uh, We are all under the leadership of someone somewhere, and throughout life, we have to follow our leaders. And we look to leaders as an example for us. Role models, people we admire, people we look up to. The question I want us to ask together this morning as we install leaders here at Grace, our elders and deacons, I want us to ask the question, what is it that makes a good leader? What is it that makes a leader worth following? And I want you to open your Bibles as we answer that question. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, as we take a look at an incredibly important passage. As you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and this question of what makes a good leader, what makes a leader worth following, I want to set the context in your mind as you're turning there to 1 Timothy. And uh, for weeks, we went through the book of Ephesians, and so we're familiar with the church in Ephesus. We know that the Apostle Paul loved the church in Ephesus. He had a special love for them. And he had established this man, Timothy, as the pastor, as the leader of the church there in Ephesus. And Paul has gotten word that things in Ephesus are not going well. That there have arisen false teachers whose conduct and confession does not align with the truth of the gospel. And so now Paul writes this book of 1 Timothy to encourage Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, to set straight the conduct and confession that's to be found among the leaders there at the church in Ephesus. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage together this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to see, number one on your outline, the conduct necessary of elders and of deacons. We're to see the confession that they're to hold dear. And then we'll talk about application, what this passage means for us today. So let's look first, number one on your outline A, we're going to see first the conduct of elders for the church in Ephesus and for our church here at Grace. Let me read for you first, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. This is the conduct of elders. Paul says this, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, It is a fine work he desires to do. An elder seer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Here Paul begins to lay out the qualifications or the conduct that's to be found in the elders of the church in Ephesus. Now let me say from the very beginning 
that we're not gonna be able to hear get into all the 15 different views of every single qualification in this list. There is a time and a place for that. It's certainly an important conversation. I'm simply gonna hit the highlights for us this morning. But the first thing we see here in verse one, Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he says, it is a fine work he desires to do. That phrase, fine work, tells me that this is a crucial role. It's an important role. And again, in the context of the church in Ephesus, false teachers have come up in the church and their conduct and their confession are out of line with the truth of the gospel. So Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, you need to find men who aspire to this office, who want to lead this church, and it's a fine work, an important work that they desire to do. And because this role is so important, it comes with specific qualifications. Let's take a look at the qualifications we see starting in verse two. Paul says, an overseer then must, first of all, be above reproach. Be above reproach. John Chrysostom noted that every single virtue we see after this is really summarized in this one phrase. It's implied in this one phrase, above reproach. The phrase above reproach does not mean that elders are to be perfect because none of us are, but it does mean that no serious or legitimate charge can be brought against an elder. If a charge was to be brought against him, he would be found innocent of that charge. He's above reproach. He's above accusation. Again, every virtue, every quality or characteristic we see following this really is summarized in that one phrase. The second thing Paul lists here, an overseer then must be above reproach and the husband of one wife. Now here we come to a qualification that has generated a ton of discussion over the years. Literally, Paul says here, he must be a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Now, the million-dollar question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a one-woman man? And throughout the history of interpretation, you see two uh, kind of uh, extreme positions with a lot of positions in the middle. Uh, On the one hand, you see some most strictly, most conservatively, you could say, say that one woman man means A, he must be married, and two, he must never be divorced. So this would exclude singles, and it would exclude anyone who's been divorced. This is by far the most conservative um, perspective. On the other end of the spectrum, you see people who interpret this phrase, a one woman man, simply meaning not a polygamist right? You can't have more than one wife. Um, I think it's somewhere in the middle. At its very basic level, I think that a one-woman man means that this must be a man who is faithful to his wife, who is faithful to his wife, One way that I've described this in the past, when I've done premarital counseling, marital counseling, and weddings, I've used the example in the book of Genesis. When you see Adam, who sees his wife Eve for the first time, he is ecstatic, isn't he? And he quite literally treats Eve as though she is the only woman on the planet. (laughs) And for us who are married, 
you must see your spouse as the only spouse on the planet for you because they are. And you must treat them that way and your faithfulness to them. And so at its very basic level, I think what Paul says here, what he means here with this phrase, a one woman man, is he's lifting up this idea of marital faithfulness in all things. The next qualification we see here as Paul goes on, he must be temperate. The word for temperate there simply means well-balanced. It describes someone who is generally calm and steady, especially in judgment. And elders often have to make particular judgments. And so this characteristic of being temperate or well-balanced is of utmost importance. Next, Paul says that an elder must be prudent or self-controlled. This is a similar word to temperate, but it means that they're not given over to sudden impulses. They're not reacting against things all the time, but they're self-controlled. Fifth, Paul says that an elder must be respectable. Someone who has a well-ordered and arranged life, they're worthy of respect. Sixth, an elder must be hospitable. He must open his home or his resources to those in need. He must be generous with what he has. At the end of verse 2, we see Paul says that an elder must be able to teach. This speaks of an elder's ability to handle the scripture. It doesn't mean that every elder must be gifted to preach, but it certainly means that every elder must be able to sit down and handle the text with people, either one-on-one -on -one or in a public setting. Uh, elders are called to hold forth the truth of the gospel and must be able to, to teach it to people, to pass it on to others. Well, continuing with these qualifications in verse three, Paul now gives us some things that an elder must not be like. Verse three says, an elder must not be addicted to wine. Pretty self-explanatory. I would say that it applies not only to wine, but to any substance, similar substance, an elder must not be addicted to. An elder, verse three again, must not be pugnacious or violent. In other words, simply speaking, an elder cannot be a bully. He doesn't push people around for his own personal gain and agenda. By contrast, notice Paul says, he must be gentle. That word for gentle means he's yielding to others. He puts other people ahead of himself. Continuing, an elder must be peaceable, not quarrelsome. He doesn't pick fights or always insist on his rights. And finally, an elder must be free from the love of money. An elder has to be a good steward of the resources God has given to him, not holding them too tightly, but being generous with what he's been entrusted with. He's generous. As we pause here and look at these qualifications, you could say that every qualification here really begins inwardly. These are inner qualifications. They manifest themselves in actions. And as Paul now shifts, he, we see how these virtues, these qualifications are really applied in the context of relationships in the household and in the community. So what does it look like for these qualifications Paul has just given? 
What does it look like in real life, you could say? Well, notice Paul goes on to explain in verse four. He says, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? One of the things as a pastor I've learned over the years is that if you really want to test a man's character to see if he lives up to the qualifications we see here listed, look at his house in his marriage and in his parenting, and if he has kids, do you see these virtues on display? Do you see a house that's well arranged? And very practically, Paul says here, if he can't manage his own household, how in the world is he gonna manage the household of God? Paul goes on and he says something pretty interesting in verse six, he kinda adds another qualification. He says an elder must not be a new convert. Why? So that he will not become conceited or prideful and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Here we see the very important element of time or testing in determining whether a man is fit to be an elder. It takes time. And you and I have all heard the sad stories, especially of pastors in the news feed who have fallen because they've been entrusted with too much too soon. They had the competence but not the character that's been proven over time to run a church, to lead a church, and to lead well. And so they've fallen into pride. And the same is true if you put an elder in that position too soon. But another area of testing, you could say, is verse seven. He must also have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. So not only is a man who's potentially an elder to be tested as seen in his home, but he's also to be tested as seen in the community. What is this man's reputation among those who know him outside the church? Practically speaking, if a man is known to be crooked in his business dealings, then that would bring reproach upon the church if we were to put him in the place of an elder. So not only is the reputation in the home important, but the reputation in the community is important as well. As we take a step back and look at this list of qualifications of what is necessary for a godly elder, I want you to notice that in this list, Paul emphasizes who the man is more than what he does. So often, when we look at people, we're impressed with what they do rather than who they are. But for Paul, it begins with who you are. There must be men who are above reproach, who have these virtues, these characteristics, these qualities, this conduct in them that's applied in real life before you would make them an elder. This is why John Maxwell, kind of the leadership guru, says that everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership, including the church. And again, in the context of 1 Timothy, the church in Ephesus was suffering because false teachers have arisen whose conduct and confession is not in line with the gospel. And so it's of utmost importance that we get this right. Again, back to the game of follow the leader. 
We have instilled in us from a very young age this idea we're constantly looking up to people in leadership positions. We're looking for role models in life. We're following people as they follow Christ. We're looking for someone to set the standard and to be the example. And what I want you to see here is, man, that standard, that calling is crucial. It's crucial. So this is the conduct of the elders. Now let's take a look at the conduct of deacons. Continuing in 1 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 8. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 first. Paul says to Timothy, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. So here Paul now shifts to the conduct of deacons, and the word deacon, by the way, simply means one who serves. But before we go any further, I want to correct sometimes what is a misunderstanding in churches. Sometimes people view elders as the real spiritual ones, and deacons are kind of the the grunt laborers who get all the work done, right? Their job isn't real spiritual. That's not at all true. In fact, what we see here in the qualifications of deacons is that many of the qualifications that were true of elders must also be found in deacons. Their job is also a very spiritual task. But yes, the word itself simply means one who serves. So let's look at the details. Again, verse eight, Paul says, deacons, the ones who serve likewise, also similarly, must be men of dignity. This is kind of like that phrase above reproach. Deacons must be men who are worthy of respect, men we admire, in other words. He says they must not be double-tongued, They don't say one thing and do another. They're not hypocrites. You believe what they say. They do what they commit to do. Next, Paul goes on and says, deacons must not be addicted to much wine. This does not, by the way, mean that they can be addicted to a little wine. (laughs) I I always wonder why Paul includes that, right? It's it's like, okay. Um, Not addicted to much wine or even a little wine. Again, similar to that of an elder. Now, uh, let me say, uh, Paul is not prohibiting drinking, right? What he's prohibiting is addiction to it. And I'll talk about this more in a little bit. Continuing with the qualifications of deacons, deacons must not be fond of sordid gain. In other words, they have to be honest with their money. And real practically, Here at Grace, our deacons are the ones who count the money, so they must be honest with that. And we have procedures and practices in place to ensure that. But it's of utmost importance, real practically. But then notice verse 9, Paul says, deacons must also hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Again, uh, the spiritual life of deacons is also important. They must be men who hold to the mystery of the faith, to what we believe with a clear conscience. We'll talk about the confession here in just a minute. But deacons, just like elders, must be men whose conduct we can follow, but also whose confession we can model as well. 
And then finally, notice verse 10. Again, Paul says, these men, speaking of deacons, must also, just like elders, first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. So we see with both elders and deacons this idea of it's important to let a little time pass as we evaluate these men before we put them into positions of leadership and determine whether or not they're truly qualified. Again, to get real practical, one of the things I've seen in in some churches is that we almost assume a man is qualified unless we see evidence of disqualification. I think Paul intends it to be the other way around. We almost assume a man is not qualified unless we see over time evidence of his qualification. And this certainly raises the standard. We assume that he's not. But over time, we test and determine whether he truly is a man we can follow. Okay. So you might be there in the pew a little bored. Preaching through a list, giving word studies and definitions isn't necessarily the most exciting sermon you've ever heard. So just to shake things up a bit, Paul throws in verse 11. He says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. So here Paul has been talking about deacons and now suddenly he throws in this idea of women. The million dollar question, one that's been debated for 2,000 years, is what in the world is Paul talking about here? When Paul says women, which women is he referring to? And again, throughout the history of interpretation, you see two major views. On the one hand, you see uh, scholars who say, well, women is describing the wife of the deacon, right? So here are the qualifications that are to be found in the wife of the deacon. The problem with that view, in my opinion, is that we saw nothing of the qualification of the wife of the elders, It would be rather odd that Paul gives qualifications for the wife of deacons, but no qualifications of the wife of elders. And so on the other end of the spectrum is the view that the women Paul is talking about here are deaconesses. Now remember, the word deacon simply means one who serves. And uh, the view that I lean towards is that the women here described are women in the church who serve, or deaconesses as they will later be called. Um, Now, by the way, I know this is controversial, um, but when you look at how the new, uh, the early church interpreted this, it's really hard to get away from the idea that they had deaconesses. So perhaps the early church got it all wrong but I think the weight of the evidence would suggest that the early church had women who served in the church called deaconesses. By the way, there are several things as you read outside of the New Testament, which is not inspired, but is informative. When you see the role of deaconesses in the early church, these were women who taught other women. These are women who ministered to the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of other women. And we also see evidence in the writings of the new uh, early church that women baptized other women. Now, real practically, let's talk about this. 
it kind of makes sense in a first century context when men and women wouldn't even sit on the same side of the room. All the men would be over here, all the women would be over there. What is the likelihood that you'd have a man baptizing a woman in water? To get even more awkward, in Judaism, baptism was sometimes done in the nude or in your underwear. And so this would get real awkward, right, if it was men and women. And so practically, this is one reason why uh, women would baptize women. Now, this is a much bigger conversation for another day. Um, And now that I have your attention, let's get back (laughs) to verse 12. (laughs) Back to men in verse 12. Deacons, male deacons here must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Similar to that of elders, by the way, the way you test these characteristics and qualifications is by looking in the household. Do deacons have solid marriages, solid families? They must be good managers of their household. Why? Notice verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtained for themselves a high standing, that is in the church, a high calling, high reputation, and also a great confidence in the faith or their faith that is in Christ Jesus. So as these men serve, they gain a high reputation and a greater confidence in their own faith. That's what Paul's saying here. Now let's pause. As we look at this entire list of qualifications of conduct of both elders and deacons, there's a few major themes here that I want to highlight that I think are of crucial importance for our culture today. All of these are important, but there's a few that I want to highlight that we need to be especially mindful of in our culture today. Number one, again, is that idea of the household. You see here this idea that the household is of utmost importance. And if we can't manage our house, how are we going to manage the church? And if you want to test and know whether a man is fit to serve as an elder or deacon, look at his household. Is it in order? Is it properly arranged? Does he have a good marriage? Does he have a great relationship with his kids? A second major area I see here is our speech. Several of these terms are related to our speech or uh, maybe inner emotions that often manifest, manifest in what we say. And the Bible has a ton to say about our tongues. James, of course, says it's impossible to tame the tongue. Uh, we see proverb after proverb talking about the speech that comes out of our mouth. And if you want to test a person's heart, listen to what they say, or in our culture, listen and read what they post. It'll often say a lot about where a person's heart is. A third area that I think is very relevant for us is this issue of wine. Not addicted to wine, not addicted to much wine. Um, But all of us, I'm sure, have read the reports in the last two years of the pandemic, alcohol sales are at an all-time high. Again, I don't think it's a sin to drink, um, but addiction too certainly is. This is something we've got to keep a pulse on in our own hearts, in our own households, and in the church. And um, if this is something you're wrestling with, man, no judgment. Come talk to us. Uh, we'll get you some help because um, we know it's, it's a rising issue in our culture. Uh, the fourth thing I want to highlight here is money. We see money mentioned a number of times, being good stewards of what we have. 
Um, and this is a good opportunity for me to highlight that, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago, we came to you at the end of the year and made an appeal. Um, because, you know, anytime you have a senior pastor transition like we've had, uh, you can expect at minimum a 10% decrease in giving. And uh, for a lot of the year, we were running a deficit and you have seen the, you know, the frowny faces in your bulletin that show that we were uh, behind in giving and those haven't been changed yet, but as of December 31st, praise God, um, we had in December the greatest month of giving Grace Bible Church has ever seen. Uh, the deficit was wiped away and that's due to your generosity as God laid that on your heart. So thank you so much for being good stewards. Praise God. Um, and the reason this is important is because, you know, man, we can continue on with the mission of Grace Bible Church and do what God has called us to do, to, to be these kind of people in our world and in our community. So thank you. Praise God uh, for that. Um, but again, what I, wanna, what I wanna highlight here is, is this passage, one of the, uh, another striking thing in these qualifications. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, great, I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, I'm not deaconess. Um, another striking thing as you look at this list is that throughout the New Testament, these are qualities, characteristics, virtues, conduct that's to be found in all Christians. All Christians are called to be these kind of people. But what Paul is doing here is he's telling Timothy to select these elders and deacons to, to really be the role models, to follow the leader here in the church, to be someone whose behavior we can mimic. And that's what Paul's doing here. But as we look at number two on your outline, we see that not only is the conduct of elders and deacons important, but also their confession. Let's look at number two on your outline. First Timothy chapter three, verses 14 through 16. Let me read for you verses 14 and 15, which, which serve as a pivot in this context. Paul says this, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So notice what Paul is doing here. He's just laid out the conduct that's to be found in elders and deacons. And he's saying to Timothy, listen, I'm hoping to come see you. I know things in the church in Ephesus aren't growing, going well. You have some false teachers whose conduct and confession are not in line with the gospel. I'm hoping to come see you, but until I'm able, I'm writing this to you so you know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. And then he describes the household of God, notice this, as the pillar and support of the truth. And now Paul shifts to this idea of our confession. The truth to which we hold dearly. Let's look at the confession in verse 16. The confession that's to be found in elders and deacons and all the household of God. He says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And here it is. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So what's Paul doing here? Again, he's highlighting the fact that not only is the conduct important, but the confession is as well. 
because these false teachers have come into the church and have begun to teach strange things. And so he lifts up for Timothy as a reminder to him, what is this common confession? A couple things that are just kind of fun. Uh, Notice the phrase there in the beginning of verse 16, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Many scholars have noted that, uh, as you probably know, if you've read through the book of Acts, um, there was a riot that once broke out in the city of Ephesus and that uh, in the city of Ephesus, there was the great worship of Artemis. And there's the instance in which the entire crowd and population of people were screaming out with a loud voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For hours they screamed, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And many scholars say perhaps Paul is kind of mocking that phrase. Not great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But great is the mystery of godliness. This common confession that the church is to have of who Jesus is. And then following that there in verse 16, we see this poem, this hymn, this creedal statement that the early church was intended to memorize as a summary of the work of Christ. Let's look at it just kind of phrase by phrase. Again, he who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We could spend hours in this trying to dissect it. But when Paul uses that phrase, he was revealed in the flesh, he's presenting forth this idea of of God who became flesh, what we just celebrated, the incarnation of Jesus during Christmas. It's crucial to the faith, to the confession that we hold as believers. Next, Paul goes on and says, Jesus was vindicated in the spirit. This most likely refers to his resurrection. That when he rose from the dead, this vindicated truly who he is as king of kings and lord of lords, the one who has conquered death itself. Paul goes on in this poem and he says, Jesus was seen by angels. This perhaps refers to his exaltation into the heavenly realm. Fourth, he's proclaimed among the nations. This is the idea that this message, this confession is to be spread throughout the ends of the earth. This is the message of salvation that the church is to confess as we go on making disciples. Believed on in the world refers to this positive reception of this gospel message by those who believe. And was taken up in glory refers to his ascension and I think ultimately to the fact that he'll come again. In other words, Paul is quoting this early hymn or creedal statement, uh, lifting forward to Timothy what it is the church believes about Jesus. He's highlighting the fact that not only is the conduct of the elders and deacons important, but so is their confession and what they believe about this man we call Jesus. And I think it's an important time to just pause and say, as we stop and consider everything that Paul is saying here, the conduct to which Paul is calling elders and deacons, and I think to all of us, if we're honest, is impossible apart from the one we see in this confession. That it's only by the power of the resurrected life of Jesus in us that we can live up to this 
type of calling and conduct we see in these verses. Uh, the, the, the truth of Christianity is that Christianity is not a do more, try harder religion because we can't do it. But it's only by submitting ourselves to this resurrected life in Christ that we see described in this poem uh, that we even have a chance. So this is the passage of First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now let's talk about application for just a few minutes. I think what Paul is doing here in 1 Timothy is he is encouraging Timothy to find these men and the deaconesses who can be people who are worth following. People to whom the entire church of God can look as examples of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Because again, just like the game followed the leader, uh, we are all looking for people to follow, to serve as our role models, our examples. But what I love about what we see here in these verses is that when we ask that question, what is a good leader? Or what are the qualities in a person that are worth following? What we're reminded of here in these verses is that it's not about a person's position, it's about their condition. It's not about the quality of their education, it's about the quality of their character. It's not about their corner office view, it's about their virtue. And those are the type of people, men and women, who are worth following. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age, and it was true in Ephesus then, it's true in Texas now, where I think our world is desperately longing for leaders who are worth following. We live in a day and an age when our political leaders are busy debating what the definition of is is, or who are parading the proverbial skeletons out of the closet unashamedly. We live in a culture where in the world, moral character is hard to find. And so what an opportunity for the church to rise up and to be the people God has intended us to be, transformed into the image of our Savior, and to be the type of leaders that the world is longing to see. But again, let's be honest and let's get real for a second. We're all familiar with the stories and the headlines of even church leaders who have fallen. Big name, big shot pastors who we all thought were the real deal. And yet when you peel back and see the man behind the curtain, you see corruption. If you've not listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, it is an eye-opening, jaw-dropping description of how dangerous the position of pastor, elder, and deacon can be. And I'll be real honest with you, it terrorizes me to see just how quickly pride can set in. And I know I'm susceptible to that. Uh, one of the things I'm grateful for, we had an elder deacon retreat yesterday and um, I think it was Joe Fricaro had the great idea of, of kind of having one of the elders kind of check in on me and make sure that I'm managing my household. 
that I'm taking care of my wife and of my kids because I know I'm prone to be a workaholic. The elders know that. And so praise God, we have a group of elders who are gonna keep me in check. And uh, I praise God for that because our world, again, it's filled with leaders um, who fall. And I think we have a crisis of leadership because we have a crisis of character. But as depressing as that is, because of the resurrection life of Jesus we see here in these verses, there is tremendous hope. It doesn't have to be that way. And as I'm standing up here before you this morning, I wanna remind you that as Christians, we have a tremendous opportunity to be the people God intends us to be by being the light in the world, by showing the world who Jesus truly is through our conduct and through our confession. That responsibility is not just on the group of men, the elders and deacons who we're gonna call to the stage here in just a few moments. It's on all of us to live out in our conduct and our confession the truth of the gospel. And with that thought, man, I'm grateful, I'm hopeful, I'm excited at the opportunity that the church has before us. I'm encouraged by what I see in our group of elders and deacons here at Grace. And so the one thing I'd ask for you all to do, your one thing for this week, I've given you some application questions to consider, but understanding the seriousness of this task and the tremendous opportunity we all have, I want you to ask, I wanna ask you to pray for your elders and deacons as they by looking to Christ, lead our church into 2022, that all of us, elders, deacons, and everyone in this room would rise up in our conduct and in our confession to the, be, be the people God has created us to be. So to close, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna call up um, our new deacons and elders. We're gonna have all of our standing and non-standing elders join us up here on the stage. We're gonna lay hands on them and pray a prayer of commissioning over them. So let me introduce to you our new deacons. Uh, first of all, we have Ben Appleby, Quentin Boyd, James Daniels, Greg Higgins, Tim Keith, and David Cole. And our new elders are Rob Armstrong. I know Rob is teaching his Sunday school class. He's already eldering and teaching. That's great. And Mark Penley, who's not able to be with us this morning. Uh, but these are your new deacons and elders. Now, if I could ask all of our standing and non-standing elders to join us up here as well. And because again, this is an important task. This is a high calling. Um, and so we wanna pray over these men, ask the Lord to protect us all as we lead our church into 2022 and beyond. And so, um, by the way, I do wanna to say too that um, none of the men on this stage, myself including, are perfect. I know Ben Appleby has perfect hair and um, there's some other great looking guys up here, but we're not, we're not all perfect. We need your prayers, we cover your prayers. And so to that end, uh, let's pray. Uh, God, we do um, pause and, and truly are humbled at the seriousness of this task. As we consider the weight, the honor, the privilege, the responsibility of leading this church, uh, truly we're humbled. We're grateful, Father, that you sent for us the perfect example in your son 
who took upon himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And so I ask that for all of us here, those of us here on the stage and those in the pew, that we would follow our Savior. That all of us would prove through our conduct and our confession to be examples to the flock. And Father, we offer to you our thanks. We ask that each day we might increase in our humility, in our service, in our love for the church, for the lost. And Father, we ask that by our lives, you would be glorified. Through Christ our Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it.